Today on The Matt Walsh Show, the pro-abortion leftist death cult continues to melt down in spasms of demonic rage over the Texas abortion law. We'll talk about that. Also, a new report says that half of the nation's children are overweight or obese. I wonder if keeping them cooped up inside for a year and a half could have something to do with that. And the Bachelor contestant canceled a few months ago for uh, going to an Old South-themed uh, frat party has hit the interview circuit for her apology tour, and it's incredibly embarrassing to watch, as you might expect. Plus, Fast food restaurants are so desperate for workers that they're now advertising openings for 14 and 15-year-olds. Some people are upset about this, apparently, but I think it's a good thing. We'll talk about that and much more today on The Matt Walsh Show. I got a question for you. Should Viagra really cost $90? Not that I know how much it costs. I don't think so. That's why I've got to tell you about RexMD. RexMD.com has FDA-approved generic Viagra, starting at just $2 per tablet and delivered discreetly to your door. Here's how it works. Just fill out a brief survey, and if appropriate, you can try a starter pack of generic Viagra. Starter packs are currently available to uh, new customers. RexMD.com has helped over 100,000 men get generic Viagra from the comfort of your home. And uh, look, this is a deal that can really get you excited. There's no copay, there's no doctor's office visit, and your shipping is always free. If you're looking for generic Viagra, RexMD has made the process fast, easy, and also affordable. So what that means is uh, if you're if, if this is what you're looking for, you don't want to wait another minute. RexMD is now offering starter packs of generic Viagra for new customers. Visit RexMD.com slash Walsh right now to get started. That's Rex, R-E-X-M-D.com slash Walsh. We are now on day two since the Texas law banning abortions after heartbeat is detected went into effect. Um, the pro-abortion legions have certainly not calmed down at all. If anything, they they've, are growing more unhinged and delirious in their frothy, spittle-flecked rage. And the rage is all the more hysterical now because the Supreme Court has officially, as of last night, denied the request from the abortion industry to uh, put a halt to the law, with John Roberts dissenting along with the other liberals, of course, the reaction from the pro-abortion death cult, it, it kind of reminds me of, if you've seen The Exorcist, it reminds me of the last scene in The Exorcist when the priest is drawing the demon out of its host and she writhes and curses and vomits and everything. Um, that's what it really reminds me of. If for whatever reason you ever had any doubts as to who the bad guys are in our interminable culture war, you need only witness this entire scene. I mean, listen to what these people are saying. And what they have been saying over the last 48 hours. Watch how they've been acting. And the truth should be very plain to you. Now, it may seem <clears throat> simplistic to some people when you talk about good guys versus bad guys. And maybe one half of that equation is kind of simplistic. I mean, I, I know myself and my own flawed nature too well to give myself the label of good guy. Perhaps a guy who is trying pathetically to be good uh, might better fit the bill. But the bad guy line is more clearly drawn, I think. The fact is that one side in this ideological struggle has overseen, facilitated, funded, and committed the serial slaughter of 60 million human beings in less than half a century, and it's not enough for them. Their, their bloodlust has not been satisfied. They want to see another 60 million killed, and then another 60 million, and on and on. Any attempt to stop the extermination or even slightly slow it down is met with anger so intense and irrational and shamelessly wicked that the only description that fits in describing it, is demonic. I mean, that's the fact of the matter. The, these are the bad guys. These are always the bad guys. Because all throughout history, 
you know, there have always been people pointing to other groups of people and saying that those people are not real people and don't deserve to be treated as real people. And the ones doing the pointing are always the bad guys. Always. History shows us that. But I don't need to wait until this chapter is in the history books to see who is who and to call these people what they are. And that's why when I see all this panicking over, uh, over the abortion law from the pro-abortion, pro-abortion side, and I hear them screaming, and I hear them say, oh no, they're coming for our abortion rights. I can only respond, yes, you're right. We, we are coming for your abortion rights. We want to burn the whole industry down and leave it in ashes. We want to dance around the smoldering rubble while you cry. That's what we want to do. And, and you're right also that the tide is turning against you. See, we in the pro-life movement are actually stronger today than we've been in years. And you notice that, and it scares you, and it should. I'm happy that we scare you. I'm happy that you're so angry and upset. It makes me very happy. Because we speak for the children that you want to slaughter. We give voice to the ones that you want to silence. And we're being heard. We will be heard. Your pathetic, trembling fear is delicious. I love it. Because it means the bad guys are suffering a defeat that they very richly deserve. Now, there are many examples we could examine here uh, of the bad guys re- you know, reacting to this defeat. We could look, for instance, at uh, Dr. Dara Cass, who put out a frantic thread of tweets urgently recommending that women in Texas get on birth control immediately, which, of course, admits that abortion is used as a form of birth control. She's saying, well, if we can't have abortion then make sure you're on the birth control pill. If we can't have that form of birth control, the murderous form, then uh, then make sure you're using contraception. This has always been obvious that it's a form of birth control, but the left rarely admits to it as explicitly and loudly as they have been over the last uh, few days. And then she writes this. She also writes, if you find out you're pregnant and do not want to be, you have very little time to do it. Do not shut down. This will be hard, but you can't delay. Call me. We'll figure this out together. That's, that's very nice and inspiring. Yes, call me and, and we'll figure out together how to execute your child. But that pales a comparison, I think, to uh, this. There's another string of tweets. This is from Richard Hananiah, who is the president of some kind of research institute and a Newsweek contributor. And he wrote this uh, this morning. He said, you can't screen for Down syndrome before about 10 weeks. And something like 80% of Down syndrome fetuses are aborted. If red states ban abortion, we could see a world where they have five times as many children with Down syndrome and similar numbers of other disabilities. Uh, Could could be outliers in the whole developed world. There are already negative stereotypes of Americans in those states. One can imagine it getting much more extreme. What if they also ban genetic engineering and embryo selection while other places go ahead? Can it get any more clarifying than that? He is openly criticizing the law on the basis that it will allow more Down syndrome people to exist. He even says that the existence of Down syndrome people will perpetuate negative stereotypes about red states. I guess the negative stereotype in this case is that red states don't believe in eugenics. Now, over on cable news, CNN and MSNBC, the reaction has been just as twisted and and, and frantic. There are many clips I could play for you, but I'm going to play just one. Um, This isn't, uh, there isn't a lot of emotional hysteria in this clip, but it's interesting only because of who is speaking on the issue. Watch this. 
Here we are on September 1st, the first day since 1973 when a state has been able to ban abortion. 1973 is the year of Roe v. Wade. And the Supreme Court has said nothing. They have allowed the second most famous opinion of the last hundred years after Brown v. Board of Education to essentially be violated, be, be overrun, but they haven't even said a word about it, which strikes me as a real blow against the Supreme Court's institutional reputation. It's the, uh, it's a famous opinion. You know what else was a famous opinion? Dred Scott. That was a famous opinion. Uh, that was established precedent at one time. But yeah, that was Jeffrey Tubin, by the way, who is worried about institutional reputation. Now, of course, you know Jeffrey Tubin as the guy who uh, really wanted his coworkers to, you know, see his point during a Zoom call. If you catch my drift, but he's he's a lot more than a public masturbator. Uh, he's got more on his resume than public masturbation. He also, according to reports tried to bribe his mistress to abort his love child. And when she refused, he tried to avoid paying child support. And she had to bring him to court to get him to pay. So this sad, masturbating, adulterous, deadbeat lump of lard is the guy that CNN brought on to analyze the Texas abortion law. Talk about shameless. But that's actually pretty appropriate, I think. Tubin, who, by the way, should be legally required to keep both hands visible during TV hits, uh, is, is a perfect representative of abortion proponents generally, and especially male abortion proponents. And they're always the ones who, who get to me the most. Uh, maybe just because I'm a man myself. These are the most pathetic specimens on earth, I believe. Because it's a man's calling, it's his vocation to protect and defend the innocent, especially his own family. But these men would rather kill than fulfill that obligation. And it's worse than that even because they're not the ones doing it. You know, they're not doing the deed themselves. They turn the other way and let their wives or girlfriends or mistresses carry the physical and emotional burden. They say, okay, go ahead and uh, my child can be killed and tossed in a dumpster. You can live with guilt for the rest of your days. If it means that my lifestyle is protected, it's all worth it. And even the men who support abortion and yet have not had any of their own children executed still support it so that they might preserve that option for themselves should they need it in the future. So these are not men at all, in my view. These are more like miserable, slimy little lizards scurrying around. Is that too harsh? I don't think so. I mean, I have nothing but contempt for men who will not do what they are meant to do as men. You know, a man is supposed to say to the mother of his child, I am here. I will always be here. I will give my life to you and the child. A man who says instead, this child must give his life for me so that I won't be inconvenienced is again, no man at all. Not worthy of the name. And this is what's so deeply disturbing. One of the things about abortion, it's that this is such an inversion of the parental instinct. Parents are supposed to sacrifice for their children, not the other way around. One of the greatest examples of this, by the way, and I was thinking about this yesterday, um, thinking about sort of like the opposite of the Tubans of the world. One of the greatest examples of how the parent-child relationship is supposed to work was given to us by a guy named uh, Thomas Vanderwood. He's a name you probably don't know. And he died several years ago, and the manner of his death is, is horrifying and yet beautiful at the same time. Because one s Sunday afternoon, his youngest son, who has Down syndrome, someone who shouldn't exist, according to the guy earlier, 
his youngest son was out in the yard. He fell through a broken cap on a septic tank and into the sewage below. And Tom ran over, jumped into the sewage, and was trying to pull his son. I couldn't, couldn't pull him out. So he submerged himself in the sewage so that he could lift his son up above it with his body. And uh, by the time help arrived a few minutes later, Tom was dead. His son survived. Now, see, that's a man. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a parent. That's a father. That's someone whose last act on earth was to give his life for his child. He plunged into filth and died horrifically just so that his son could live. Now, Tom was already a great man before he performed this final act. It might not be fair to measure anyone up against him, but even so, you put him up against the Tubins of the world, the men and women who hyperventilate over any attempt to restrict their ability to murder their own kids, and uh, they just shrivel into nothingness. It becomes very clear which is the ideal, which path is right, which example we ought to follow. We aren't all going to be martyrs or heroes, of course, but we should be required to fulfill at least our most basic obligation to our children. And that is, that's what the whole debate is really about, more than anything. The question is, I think this is the primary question in the abortion debate. Even before we get to personhood or any of these other, these other really fundamental questions, which is not really a question at all because it's clear that the child is a person. But the first question is, should parents be allowed to kill their children instead of caring for them? Is murder an acceptable parenting strategy? The answer to that question, at least in Texas, is as it should be, no. And in the end, uh, through all of this, we see why the left guards abortion so jealously and, and, and panics over anything that threatens it. Because for them, for the people in the death cult, abortion is the holiest sacrament because it's the final victory of the self over everything else. For people who see no higher good than the advancement of the self, their own self specifically, not really anybody else's self, abortion is not only necessary, but it's even a virtuous act. It's the ultimate triumph, right? It's, it's a person saying that their own pleasure, their own convenience, their own lifestyle is so sacrosanct that they will spill blood to preserve it. They will sacrifice their own children at the altar of the self. And that's why I call it a death cult. And it's also why we should fight it tooth and nail to the end. Now let's get to our five headlines. Now a quick word from Paint Your Life. You know, we, we recently moved and still getting the house kind of set up. Well, I'm not getting the house set up. My, my wife is. Uh, I, I have no sense of these things at all. But uh, every day I walk in and, you know, things, more things have been assembled and, and put up and decorations have been put up. And what I certainly have noticed is that paintings can really bring the room together and they can make your, your home feel like home, especially a painting of one of your loved ones. If you want to give a truly meaningful gift uh, to yourself or to someone else, you've got to try PaintYourLife.com. Get a professional hand-painted portrait created from any photo at a truly uh, affordable price or combine photos of people or places uh, that you love into one painting. You can choose from a team of world-class artists and work with them until every detail is perfect. It's a user-friendly platform. It's easy to uh, make your custom order and get this hand-painted portrait in less, uh, and get it ordered anyway in less than five minutes. Delivery is very fast as well. I've done this myself, and we were extremely happy with the final product and also uh, just how easy it was and how hands-on they were and receptive to all of our feedback and everything else. So at paintyourlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, it's a limited-time offer. Get 20% off your final painting. 
That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word MATT to 64000. That's MATT to 64000. Text MATT to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Okay, so uh, as we continue on the road here, you know, I, I complained yesterday that I had been put up in a serial killer hotel, which I had. My room was like something out of a horror movie. Filthy, dark, tiny, sinister stains on the walls and bedsheets. Uh, a chalk outline of a dead body on the carpet. There was literally, I'm not making this up, a, a raccoon curled up in the closet. And like cockroaches sitting at a table in the corner playing poker, smoking cigarettes. You turn on the faucet and blood comes out. Um, I think I might be blending the actual room with the nightmare I had about the room while I was sleeping in the room. But, you know, you, you get the idea. Anyway, because of my diva meltdown yesterday on the air, uh, today I've been put up in a luxury suite downtown. And I have to say, I'm still offended and I'm repulsed by this room. First of all, only one of the bathrooms in the room has a hot tub, which is outrageous. No champagne bottles were waiting for me when I, when I showed up here. They don't even have bathrobes, if you can believe it. Not that I'd actually wear a bathrobe that a thousand naked bodies before me have, uh, have been in, but I'd like to know that there's one there hanging in the closet. Just uh, gives me peace of mind. So just one humiliation after another on the trip. I, I, have, I have been asked to sacrifice so much. I, I really feel, as I sit in this room right now, I feel connected to the people who were in like wagon trains on the Oregon Trail. I, I think that's the best comparison in a lot of ways. All right. Um, Moving on. So there's one other point, actually, that I want to make on this uh, uh, this Texas law, this abortion thing. And it's it's the point that I'm sure you, you know I'm going that I can't I can't resist making. I have to make, which is that over the last couple of days, we've seen this resurgent. The, the, the feminists have come forward again. The, the feminists who have kind of receded into the background on the left have fallen out of favor in many ways. Um, but they're now on the forefront and they're talking about things like women's rights. And this is an attack on women's bodies. And th this is, this is a handmaid's tale. I mean, these are misogynists and sexists who are supporting this law because they want to control women. Okay. Well, you know what I'm going to say? What is a woman then? What are you, what are you talking about? I don't know who, who are these people you're talking about? Women? What is that? I, I don't know what you mean. So you, you can't have it both ways. You, you got to pick one lane of crazy or the other. You can't do both here. That doesn't work. Because you've been telling us for years now that women don't exist and that men can get pregnant too. If men can get pregnant too, okay, then, then how is this an attack on women specifically? You, you would, if it's an attack on anyone, which it isn't, obviously, you damn psychopaths. Uh, we're just trying to stop people from being killed. But if it's an attack on anyone, it's just like it's an attack on everyone, right? It's not an attack on anyone specifically. I mean, the Texas abortion law is an attack on me because I could get pregnant, apparently. Uh, I've never tried, don't plan on it, but that's what I'm told. So all of a sudden now, we're, we're hearing about this. After years and years, I mean, especially recently, pregnant women, women's bodies, like these, these phrases are not even used anymore. Even by our public health authorities and official documents, they, they won't talk about pregnant women. And now, so that they can play the identity politics card, 
Now they, uh, the, the LGBT and, and everyone higher up on the victimhood ladder, d- temporarily they have stepped back and allowed the feminists to climb that ladder again, uh, just surely out of political convenience. If this is an attack on women, if this is an attempt to control women's bodies, then that means that only women can get pregnant. Now we're starting to, now now we're starting to. Okay, well, only women can get pregnant, and, and now and now the, the picture of what a woman is is starting to come into focus, isn't it? You got to pick one or the other. It just doesn't work. I'm sorry. All right, this is from the Federalist. It says nearly half of the nation's children aged five through eleven now qualify as either overweight or obese, according to results of a new study out Friday. Researchers from the University of Southern California and the University of Michigan found the proportion of U.S. children aged five, between 5 and 11 who were overweight and obese on the body mass index rose from just more than 36% pre-pandemic to nearly, 40, to nearly 46% over the course of prolonged classroom closures. Uh, Dr. Tim Logeman says school is essential. Kids are eating ultra-processed foods locked in at home, and it's making them sicker. A literature review on effective strategies for childhood obesity prevention published in May of last year lends credence to Logeman's claims. Um, According to a team of 19 European researchers who reviewed more than 400 studies from 2000 to January 2015, school-based programs to mitigate childhood obesity were found far more effective than seminars directed at at parents to teach healthy living at home. Okay, so there are there are assumptions here that that uh, that I don't agree with, and one of one of the assumptions is that uh, parents are incapable of uh, preventing their children from becoming fat. Or the idea that that parents need seminars in the first place is more effective than a seminar. Like I don't need my children are not obese. I don't need any seminar for that. They don't they don't drink uh, soda hardly at all. We don't have a lot of junk food in the house, and uh, they they we we they get plenty of exercise. They run around and play all the time. We're always making sure that they're we get we get them off the couch. They don't have phones. They don't sit around the couch all day looking at phones. Limit the TV time, and all the rest of the time we say what my parents said to me when I was a kid, and I said I'm I'm bored. Well, you can go outside and play, or you could do some chores. What do you think? Well, those are your two options. If you're bored, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll, I'll make sure you're not bored anymore. So I don't need any seminars. I, I already know that. The idea that uh, that kids need to go to school so that they don't become obese is absurd. But the connection between the lockdowns and obesity is, is pretty obvious. I mean, it's not a coincidence that we've seen a 10% spike in childhood obesity, which was already... Sky high. I mean, 36%. Especially when you consider what it takes to be obese as a child. This should be something that we're all used to seeing obese children walking around. And it's very sad to see. But this should be something like you almost never see. This should be, seeing an obese child should be like, it should be like, you know, it it should be like, it's like spotting a unicorn or something. It should be just something you never see. Because children are, you know, they've got very active metabolisms naturally, and they're very, and they should be active themselves naturally. They've got a ton of energy. It's extremely, and you can control everything they eat. They can, they're not eating anything you don't give to them. 
You don't want your, you don't want your kid to be obese. Just don't have soda in the house. Don't have junk food and, and don't let them sit on the couch all day. Boom. Done. No more obesity of children. 36% is crazy. 46% is even more crazy. 10% hike. It's clearly, clearly there's a um, connection. But I would say the connection is less the fact that, they're, that they weren't going to school and more the fact that uh, so many parents kept their kids locked inside. And at the same time, we shut down the playgrounds. But let's, let's never forget that. Even where I lived, you know, they were, they were putting caution tape around playgrounds like it's a crime scene. Taking the, uh, the basketball hoops down and basketball courts, t- taking away the opportunities for kids. To go. And then a lot of crazy parents also didn't want their kids going outside. They were afraid that their kid walked down the front, front yard. The coronavirus is going to come in and, uh, you know, assault them. So that's the connection. But there very clearly is a connection. And as we hear about um, coronavirus among children, and we, we know that it is very rarely severe among kids. They're at much higher risk from, from the flu than they are from COVID. But, but there, there have been some severe reactions. I mean, there are going to be some children who react severely to coronavirus. And I'd be very curious to know how many of, the, of those kids were overweight or obese. They're not very forthcoming with that information, but that would be, that would be an interesting thing to know. Because we know that the obese are especially susceptible to this virus. The obese are especially susceptible, so let's shut down the parks. Let's shut down the playground. Let's tell people they can't go outside without a mask on. Makes a lot of sense. All right, next, Rachel Kirkconnell is the uh, the Bachelor contestant who, if you recall, she was canceled a few months ago because she uh, uh, there was a, a, a photo that surfaced of originally on Instagram where she went to an Old South-themed frat party back in 2018. Why did she go to an Old South-themed frat party? Well, it could be that she's a neo-Nazi, skinhead, confederate, uh, you know, amalgamation of, of all of the terrible things all rolled into one, and she went there to celebrate white supremacy and racism. I mean, that could be it for this ditzy, air-headed sorority girl. Air-headed. Yeah, she's, she's stupid. I just called her air-headed. This air-headed person. Um, anyway, it could be that, or, or it could be that she went to the party because she wanted to wear the dress and take pictures, you know, that was one of the other, but everyone assumed it's because it's, it's more the former and that she wanted to celebrate white supremacy and racism and she's really a Nazi. And so the picture came out and she was canceled and, but she's been groveling and apologizing this whole time. Um, mostly groveling and apologizing, you know, kind of an Instagram post and everything, but now she's hit the interview circuit. And she appeared on something called From Privilege to Progress on Instagram Live, which already sounds unbearable. But now let's watch and uh, listen to what she had to say. Let's listen. And I guess that's the first time my eyes opened about, okay, like, this is, there's a difference between being not racist and anti-racist. Because back then, if you would have asked me, like, are you a racist person? I would be like, of course I'm not, you know, like I would never, ever, ever judge someone by their skin color or, you know, be prejudiced towards them or racist towards them. Like that's, that was like, I would have never, ever considered myself that back then. And that was probably the first time I realized like, okay, so there are layers to this. You can obviously be overtly, openly racist, but you can also be 
or have like implicit bias and and um these racial tendencies within you that you don't even know about or you can be racially ignorant and that was probably the first time i had realized that and i think the peak for me was last summer um during the movements after george floyd that's when i realized like okay i need to do more than just not be racist so there, there you go. She's, uh, she's learned that there's a difference between racism and anti-racism. I mean, she, she claims that she learned this. So this was a, this was a, um, an epiphany that she had before the picture came out. So that's, that's and, and, and part of the epiphany, of course. She kinda, you can see how she throws everything in there. She throws the whole kitchen sink into it. She talks about racism versus anti-racism. She's acknowledging her privilege. And then she even talks about the martyrdom of blessed George Floyd, hallowed be his name. And she says how that was the final thing that made her confront racism. Just, again, continuing to grovel and apologize and say everything that her cultural overlords demand her to say. And the thing is, they'll, they'll sit there. I mean, the people doing this interview, whoever they are, you could see them kind of sitting there and, and, you know, li- listening and nodding their heads and saying, well, it's very good. You're saying the right things. Yes, dance, puppet. Dance. Uh, you can see them doing that. But it's not going to change anything. She, she will still be forever and always, according to these people, uh, a, a racist scumbag. That will never change. But she will, she will continue to, to try. She's even still apparently with the guy, was it Matt Jones, I think, the, the bachelor who they were all competing, competing for, and she won the competition. I, I don't even know how the bachelor works, actually. So I think that's, she, she was competing for the affections of this guy, who I believe his name was Matt Jones, and she, she won, and then this whole, and then this whole controversy started. And he, he threw her under the bus to her face on live TV, called her a racist. He was tearing up and crying, claiming that he was emotionally traumatized because his girlfriend went to a party and wore a pretty dress three, four years ago. And she's still with that guy, too, doing her penance, hoping that eventually forgiveness will come, but it will never come. You know, that's that's forgiveness is like a a two way street. Not that she has anything to be forgiven for. But there's no, on the other side, there's no willingness at all to forgive. And again, to forgive a thing that there was nothing wrong with in the first place. Yet another, uh, another lesson for us all. This is, you know, when, when, when they come for you, when the cancel mob comes for you, as I always say, there's just, there's no reason to apologize. It's not even about being brave. I mean, it's good if you can be brave and have, a, and have a backbone, have a spine, if the cancel culture mob ever comes for you. And it'll come for us all eventually. But even if you're not especially brave, there's also kind of a self-preservation thing here. You've got to ca- ca- calculate risk and reward. Or at least resign yourself to the reality, which is that you're done as far as they're concerned. If you, if you ever wanted to be respected or liked or, 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 or applauded 
by the people in the mob, it's never going to happen now, ever. And that's, that's just how it is, so you might as well accept that. All right, this is from Business uh, Insider. It says, a McDonald's in Medford, Oregon, has a banner out front advertising that it's hiring 14- and 15-year-old workers. The Biddle Road restaurant operator, Heather Coleman, told Insider, there are always staffing issues, but this is unheard of. She said the situation is unique in her family's 40-year history operating McDonald's franchises. The young workers have been a blessing in disguise, Coleman said. They have the drive and work ethic. They get the technology. They catch on really quickly, she says. While raising the minimum wage to $15 didn't bring in as many applicants as she'd hoped, opening the doors to 14 and 15-year-olds brought in about 25 new applications in two weeks, she said. Uh, well, what do you know? We were told it, it's the... It's got to be $15 an hour. That's supposedly a living wage. Because apparently someone who's working part-time running a cash register at McDonald's, that's supposed to be a job, like a career that you can live off of. And they raise the, to, uh, they raise the, they do the $15 minimum wage and has no effect. People still aren't interested. Um, instead, no, wh- why are they attracting 14 and 15-year-olds? One of the reasons is that 14 and 15-year-olds aren't getting that sweet unemployment money from, from, the, uh, from the government. And they weren't directly receiving the stimulus checks. But for whatever reason, and I say that kind of rhetorically, I know the reason, uh, the reaction to this, and there are other, and the article goes on, uh, this is a, a trend now, as more and more fast food restaurants especially are directly advertising themselves to 14 and 15 year olds, putting banners out front saying 14 and 15 year olds, we're hiring, come on in. And this has been uh, apparently for some people controversial. They're kind of upset about this. I mean, how, how dare you try, try to advertise to the sweet, innocent children. I mean, they should all be sitting at home on their phones. That's what they should be doing as children. I don't see, why is this controversial? I don't see why this should be controversial. I had my first job, my first, I had my first official job working at, uh, it was a a, a snowball stand. And I think I was making like four and a half dollars an hour or something. I had that job when I was 13. And I had unofficial under the table jobs mowing lawns before that. Probably like from, from the age of 11, I had some kind of paying job. Certainly by 14 and 15, definitely. So uh, not only is it okay for McDonald's and fast food restaurants to advertise to 14 and 15-year-olds, it's a good thing. They should be doing this. Uh, for, for two reasons. Number one, it's good for the kids. What's the downside? They're not, they're not working in a coal mine. We're not sending them down to the coal mines. They're not, they're not working... You know, in, in, in a factory in the early period of the industrial age, where, where factory accidents are happening seven times a day and their you know, arms are getting caught in machines and, and ripped off. That's, they're sitting there running a cash register, pouring some salt onto fries, and that's it. Maybe they get a little, maybe there's some splash from the grease, they get a little bit burned. Uh, I think they'll be okay. So it's good for the kids. It's not bad for them, it's good for them. They're learning, learning work ethic, they're earning a little bit of their own money. Uh, I, I could tell you for sure that as a kid, and this, there's no contest here at all for me personally, because I went to public school and I also had part-time jobs. And uh, where did I learn the most? 
in the jobs for sure. That, that was the best education. Because you're learning not only generalized sort of work ethic and, and um, how to show up on time, how to fulfill your responsibilities. Those are really important lessons for kids to learn and other lessons and also lessons that they often don't learn in the public school system. But there are also just some basic skills that you're learning. Running a cash register, you got to do math. At least back in those days, there was, there was some math involved at least. Now it's all, now not quite as much. But um, still, you're kind of, you're, you're applying some of the academic things that you're learning in school in the real world. And so it's all positive. It's a great thing. It's also good for families, especially lower income families. I mean, because th- we have this idea that kids, like, you, you shouldn't get a job until you're 18 or something. And even then, maybe don't get a job. And so in lower income families and really in any family, you have kids who are able-bodied. They could easily get a part-time job and do it and contribute to the household income, at least be able to buy some things for themselves, be contributing members of the family. And, uh, but but uh, so often they're not because of this absurd idea that some people have that it's, it's wrong for a teenager to work. And then the other point also is that these jobs are, are made for teenagers. That's why the raise the minimum wage thing, the vast majority of people aren't even aren't on minimum wage. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a relatively small minority of the overall working population. And a great number of them are young. And these are jobs that are not meant to be. It's like, these are not, jo- a minimum wage job is not meant for someone like myself, 35 years old with four kids at home. Because even if they raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, that's still not really going to be enough to fulfill all the obligations that I have. These jobs are made for kids. It's perfect for them. Because they, they, they don't have a family to support on their own. They don't have kids of their own, hopefully. Uh, they can do these kind of minimal tasks that are very easy to learn and benefit in the process. It's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. Okay. Uh, let's move on now to reading. Well, here's this also. I just wanted to show you this. This is a tweet from a Ford Europe. It says, you asked Ford to make the very gay Raptor a reality, and we heard you. Our real-life version made its debut at Cologne Pride last week in, its, in all of its rainbow-adorned glory. And then you can see uh, the vehicle there decked out in rainbows. They said that, that we asked for this, and that's why they did it. And, and they're right, actually. I, I, ha- I have been, I, how many times have I said it myself? I've been asking for this. How many times in the show have I said, we got to have the very gay raptor? So thank you, Ford, finally, for doing that. Okay, that was an important note before we get to our uh, reading the comments. This is from Lupin's Red Jacket says, Reminder, it's not a right if it tramples the rights of another. In this case, the right to life, of which is made abundantly clear in our Constitution, that it must be protected just as, uh, just as much as any other. Yeah, uh, this is where we get into you know, wh- what is a human right. And I think almost everyone has a very vague idea of what a human right is. That this, this, this goes back to, this lies at the foundation of many of our disagreements and debates, like we can't even agree on what a right actually is. And it, and it is hard to define. But one thing we know for sure is that rights, actual human rights, 
which are inherent to our human nature, are not in conflict with another, with one another. Okay, so it's not a zero-sum game with human rights. So if you get, if you find yourself in a position where there's a tension between two rights claims, where if, if one person is able to exercise their rights, it means that another person can't exercise theirs, what that tells you every time is that there's a confusion here about rights, is that one or both of these rights claims are not legitimate. Because when it comes to actual rights, if they're real, then you should be able to exercise them without causing any harm to anybody else. Um, okay, moving on. This is from CT. It says, uh, I know you'd be hard-pressed ever side with abortion, but you said reproduction should never be forced. Could it be argued then that abortion could be allowed in the case of rape resulting in pregnancy? This argument definitely has a lot of loopholes. Women falsely claim rape. You could argue that it would only be feasible if the rapist is convicted. But the child should, would be long born or aborted by the time the courts determine culpability. Just curious on your thoughts. Huge fan. Thanks for everything you do. Uh, no, because again, it's already occurred, right? I said that we don't, we don't force reproduction. No one is trying to do that. And yeah, you could say rape is, is that, but that's not a law. I'm talking about legally. There's no legal effort to force women to reproduce as much as we hear that claim in relation to these abortion laws. Well, that's, that's an entirely different thing because at the time of the abortion, the reproduction has already occurred. Uh, now, the rape obviously should not have happened. It's a travesty, an injustice. The person responsible should be convicted. And then, uh, and then if, I, if, if, they, if I had my way, they immediately be marched up the gallows and hanged in front of the whole town. That's what I think we should do with actual convicted rapists who are guilty. But the forced reproduction at that point has already happened. And abortion can't undo that or change it. That's the point. All it can do is create one more victim. Yeah, the rape should not have happened, clearly. Um, but this person exists now. This is a person who exists How do we address the rape or mitigate it in any way by killing that person? What you're talking about is executing the child for the sins of the father, and that's atrocious. Um, Stanley says, so glad that Matt isn't just making 90% of his coverage about Afghanistan like everybody else in Con Inc. Yeah, I, you know, I, I said a couple weeks ago, and I, I did talk about Afghanistan a little bit, but I started the show when this was first in the news, um, again anyway, and I said, this is, this is, I'll talk about it, but this is not my area of focus. Uh, it's not because it's not important. I mean, everybody has certain areas that they focus on and, and have something to contribute on. Foreign policy is important. But it's not what I focus on. I, I, I tend to focus on the issues that are impacting us right here at home. And they're also the issues that I personally find the most interesting and I think the most about and have read the most about and therefore feel like I have something to contribute when it comes to them. 
another comment says, when you're on the road, do you apply your own makeup? If so, you need to record it. The Sweet Baby Gang would love it. Um, we're not going to talk about what happens with the makeup. We're just not going to discuss it. Okay? We don't, we don't discuss it. We especially don't discuss it in the hotel room. The things that need to be done in order to make sure that the makeup is applied. We don't talk about those things. Um, my producer, Sean, actually applies it. That's, that's, that's what he's, he's learning is how to be a makeup artist. Um, and I know that he's quite, he's quite thrilled about that. All right. Uh, Paul says, had a dream last night and Matt was in it. We were at a wedding together and he was running around and, ta- and tapping all the guests and pointing at me and yelling, making fun of my shirt. Then at the reception, I was eating at a booth with Matt and his kids. And every time I tried to put the fork to my mouth, Matt would try and throw food into my mouth. He was laughing until the waiter asked him to stop. Like I said, this was my dream. Not sure why we were in a booth or why I was eating waffles, but I feel like the part about Matt is accurate as foretold. Uh, yeah, Paul, unfortunately, I'm going to have to ban you for the show, from the show for this because we don't, we don't talk about dream stories. Dream stories are, the, are the, the most pointless and boring stories you could possibly tell. Your dream is interesting to you, but not not to anyone else. I I will allow it if I'm in the dream, selfishly. But even this story, I mean, you lost me halfway through. And I just, I completely lost interest. So you're banned. Even though I just, I think I talked about my own dream a few minutes ago. But, of course, I don't have to abide by my own rules. And finally, Chloe says, day one of asking Matt to shave his beard for the lulls. Well, Chloe, day one of me telling you that you are, obviously, you knew this was coming, banned from the show for that. How dare you? Well, as you know, once a month, your favorite Daily Wire hosts come together to drink a little whiskey, smoke a few cigars, and have a lively conversation about the state of the world. Usually everything that's uh, wrong with it, and sometimes it, uh, it devolves into a screaming match. Maybe not quite a screaming match, but... but but uh, close to it. And while every episode is special, our upcoming October, October episode is going to be a little bit extra special. Instead of just tuning in from your home, you'll be able to see us live and on stage at the famous Ryman Auditorium right here in Nashville, doing what we do best, making sense. So join myself, Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens, Jeremy Boring, Michael Knowles, and Andrew Clavin for a backstage like never before. And we have a very special offer for our members starting at 11 a.m. Eastern today. Daily Wire members get first dibs to buy your Tickets ahead of general admission, so check your email for an exclusive uh, code that you can use to pre-order your tickets. Once you have your code, pre-purchase your tickets ahead of everybody else at dailywire.com slash Ryman. And if you're not a member, then you can join today at dailywire.com slash subscribe to get your choice of seats or wait until tickets go on sale everywhere tomorrow, Friday, September 3rd. So check your email to make sure you don't miss out. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today for our daily cancellation, we're going to cancel uh, weddings. Not all weddings, you know, not the sacrament of matrimony, certainly. I'm a big fan of matrimony. So I'm such a big fan that, that I'm going to try something different and only do it once. You know, if you're really a fan of it, that's what you do. Um, I think more people should get married. Uh, when I'm theocratic dictator of the hemisphere, you'll be required to get married before the age of 25 or become a monk or a nun. But these are the kinds of policies that nobody in Washington has the guts to propose. The point is, I think marriage is great, which means that weddings are great. Marriage is great. They're, they're sacred. They're mystical. They're transcendent. What I'm canceling instead are the many elaborate and self-centered forms that modern weddings have taken. 
I'm canceling especially the dreaded destination weddings. Those are canceled. And what brings this to mind is a recent story in the New York Post about a couple that decided, like so many couples before them, that their nuptials were so special and important that a normal wedding somewhere in the continental United States wasn't good enough for them. They needed to travel thousands of miles away to a foreign land. Um, And when guests didn't show up, this couple sent those truant guests a bill. So here's the report. It says, The honeymoon's over for a pair of newlyweds who were so steaming mad at wedding no-shows, who originally RSVP'd yes, that they slapped them with a $240 bill to cover their costs. A now viral photo of the invoice tickled Twitter this week, uh, calling out the no-show, no-call guests and declaring, I don't think I've ever seen a wedding reception invoice before. The bold move, which is sure to seal the fate of that friendship, sparked a heated online debate over whether the couple's missive was tacky or totally justified. The no-shows were given a payment due date of one month from August 18th invoice sent by the once-anonymous newlyweds whose um, uh, resort and spa wedding in Jamaica apparently cost $120 a head per the detailed invoice that many tweeters assumed was fake. Turns out it was not fake. The Post tracked down the offenders, Doug Simmons and Deidre McGee, now Simmons. Doug apparently was so proud of himself for this stunt that he posted the bill to his own Facebook. And the invoice said, according to what he posted on Facebook, this invoice is being sent to you because you confirmed seats at the wedding reception during the final headcount. Because you didn't call or give us proper notice that you wouldn't be in attendance, this amount is what you owe us for paying for your seats in advance. You can pay via uh, Zelle or PayPal. Please reach out to us and let us know which method of payment works for you. Thank you. Then the article continues and says, When reached by the post, the groom admitted that, yes, he got a little bit petty, but I'm not some trifling person who's going to bill somebody, even though that's exactly what he did. Uh, Simmons, a small business owner in Chicago, stressed that it's not about money. He and his new bride were merely hurt and felt disrespected by the no-shows at their hard-earned dream wedding with more than 100 attendees. He said, quote, Four times we asked, are you available to come? Can you make it? And they kept saying yes. We had to pay in advance for Jamaica. This was a destination wedding. Okay. Let me explain what happened here, Doug. First of all, nobody on your guest list actually wanted to go. None of them did. Okay, if they wanted to spend money and vacation time on a trip to Jamaica, which most of them didn't, but if they did want to, then they just would. They'd go on a vacation. They'd prefer to do it on their own time, to enjoy the trip for themselves and not have all of these assignments that they have once they get there. You're not providing anyone an opportunity to go to Jamaica unless you're paying for all of the airfare and all the lodging and everything for everyone which I assume you didn't. So this is not an opportunity. Anybody can go to Jamaica whenever they want. It's that, it's that, it, but if, if that's how they want to spend their time and money, they can do it on their own. This rather was an assignment that you were giving them. The invitation itself was already a bill. It was, here's all this money that I'm asking you to spend for us. Here's how it goes down once those destination wedding blackmail letters go out. A certain portion of your friends and family who would like to celebrate your wedding with you will have to immediately say no because they simply don't have the time and money to go to some far-flung tropical location. You will have automatically excluded all friends and family who cannot afford an extravagant trip. And what's more, you make them feel guilty because of your own profligate behavior. And next, a certain portion will get the, get the, you know, the invitation and they'll roll their eyes and they'll show the invitation to their spouse and they'll say, oh man, can you believe this? Jamaica? Come on. But they'll still end up coming at great financial hardship to themselves out of this sense of obligation. Then another portion will agree because 
they feel forced into it, but they're going to pull out at the last moment because something's come up in their lives that prevents them from going to Jamaica, or maybe simply because they ultimately decide that they don't want to do it, and they resent the fact that you put them in this position to begin with. Uh, and that's the way it breaks down. And the common thread here is, is, that, uh, is that you are imposing yourself on your loved ones and expecting that they will cancel their own summer vacation plans and dedicate that time to celebrating you instead. This is all your fault. Not only do your guests not owe you any money, but you, in fact, owe all of them a refund and an apology for having a destination wedding. Now, of course, not all egotistical, self-seeking destination wedding couples would go so far as to send a, you know, a bill to the no-shows, but they are all still egotistical and self-seeking. And we shouldn't limit this just to destination weddings. Because for years, the trend has been for engaged couples to treat their weddings as if they're royal monarchs, right? Weddings have become exorbitantly expensive, unnecessarily extravagant, centered more and more around the, the egos of the individuals getting married, rather than a respect and reverence for the sanctity of the sacrament that's being performed. Now, it's not that weddings shouldn't be fun. It's that they should be. They ought to be joyous and festive. But our approach to weddings often sucks the joy and festivity out of it. You know, the whole bridezilla stereotype comes from the fact that brides so often in our culture feel that their big day is licensed to be miserable and demanding and self-absorbed. I mean, how did it get to this point? It's no coincidence that weddings are a $50 billion a year industry in a country where divorce is rampant. It, it may seem kind of like an irony that we, that we make such a big deal out of weddings but care so little about marriage, but really it's not ironic at all. It makes sense to see things kind of shake out this way. Lavish and excessive weddings are lavish and excessive because the people involved are inordinately focused on themselves. And people who are inordinately focused on themselves usually do not succeed in relationships, especially not romantic relationships. A person who feels themselves entitled to a day or several days obsessively dedicated to a celebration of the self, no matter the cost and no matter the toll it takes on their families and friends, usually they've arrived at this conclusion because they believe that every other day of their lives should be the same. They think that every day is a celebration of themselves. And this is generally not a good way to start a marriage with this kind of costly, overwrought tribute to your own ego. Especially if you don't even have the decency to hold this carnival of vanity somewhere within the country where you, all, you and all of your loved ones actually live. And for that reason, destination weddings are canceled. You'll have to make other plans because I've canceled all of those weddings. Try renting a pavilion, you know, at your local park for 45 bucks. Grill some burgers, some hot dogs, get a few kegs. Your guests will have a blast. Blast, I guarantee it. That is the type of wedding celebration and, and, uh, and reception I am now assigning to the entire world. It has been decreed. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day, everyone. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Sasha Tolmachov. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Nika Geneva. 
And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2021. The Supreme Court permits a wonderful pro-life law in Texas to go into effect. Joe Rogan contracts and recovers from the Wu flu, and a new poll shows that most Americans want Joe Biden to resign. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.